Today's episode of Modern Bonsai is brought to you by Bonsaien, Australia's premium online bonsai store. Buy now and pay later with Afterpay and fast Australia-wide shipping. Don't forget to also check us out on YouTube by searching Bonsaien. Modern Bonsai listeners, welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Today we are joined again by Andrew Edge, who joined us to talk a little bit about Australian natives and some of his experiences that we've had, also some of my different experiences, and just to talk uh, bonsai in general like we usually do. So kick back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Gotcha. But we're all good. I've got some more standing area. Yeah, cool. Keep my phone in here because you want to stop at about 6.30, yeah? Yeah, I've just got to get ready for work and keep going, so. Yeah, that's fine. Sweat out. All right, so back again for round two. G'day mate, how are you? Good, how are you? Yeah, not too bad, not too bad at all. It's been a good day. So. Yeah, it's been an interesting day. I've learned some stuff again coming out here. Yeah, it's always good fun. Always can learn something. So every day, every day is an opportunity to to move forward and to improve. So mm-hmm. it's uh, it's good to have you over, and uh, good to always nice to to show off the trees and and show you what I'm up to. Yeah, no, the trees are the trees are looking good, especially a lot of the pines and stuff out there, and yeah. um, some so, of the junipers that you got going out there. It's always there was always something to do when you've got a lot of trees. So <laughs> tell me about it. There's <laughs> always something to do, but uh, been uh, it's it's busy times, busy times, especially leading into autumn. So last month of of summer now for us here in Australia and. You know we're uh, what with the bushfires and and now we've just been drenched with rain for the last couple of weeks on and off and then a couple of serious days of rain. My backyard's looking like a swimming pool in sections. Unfortunately, um, the pump on the drainage pit just decided to go. Usual story, right yep. when you don't want it to. So yeah, it's been busy doing other things other than bonsai as well. So yeah. Yeah, well, um, the leptos have been keeping me busy in my garden, trying to keep the the apexes under control because every week they're elongated again. You've got to cut back to the... That's our natives for you, yeah. Absolutely. Cut back to the smaller internodes and keep them nice and tight. And yep. But they're looking really good at the moment. A lot of the apexes are really tight, nice small fine leaves on them. Yep. But... A lot of them are at that point at the moment where they look a bit funny because the, the apex of the tree is nice and kept and trimmed back, but some of the bottom branches are real long and leggy, trying to get that thickness and yep. trying to balance out the Balance thickness. them out, yep, absolutely. And that's, that is the big challenge for us with our natives and especially like, you know, as you mentioned, you've got these big extensions. We've had the heavy downpours of rain which for our natives in the ground is a, it's a big time for them to go you beauty suck all of that water all of that nutrient up as much as they can so that when the sun re- does shine again 
they they push hard um, to get that that growth out and to you know to produce more foliage so as they can get bigger. Yeah. So and it's you'll see them stop for a week or two, bang another hit of rain, boom, they grow again like within a couple of weeks even. It's and they harden off so quickly. Uh, it's to watch and now for us as bonsai practitioners that's that becomes a real challenge when you want to maintain uh, very short internodes and very small leaves um, watering is a key factor in maintaining those when you have something that's actually ramified quite heavily uh, too much water the internodes extend a little bit too much compared to the internode before and so you end up with these longer sections that all of a sudden you might have to cut back harder. And so that, and feeding them becomes a problem. Well, not a problem. You, you, of course, you've got to feed the trees, but it becomes uh, very strategic. That was the word I was after. Um, well, it depends on where the tree is in its life. If you're developing the tree, then heaps of water, heaps of feed. Absolutely. Get, and Get and, it thick and leggy. And, yep. and then once it gets back to refinement, then we need to start pulling those resources back a bit yep. to try and, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, um, well, it comes down to, you know, there are different approaches to, to even growing bonsai and, and like exotic species of tree pines. There are, there are the, the very fast methods of growing trees, um, putting them in the ground, um, accelerated growth with heavy feeding, um, both chemical and organic if you like um, uh, putting them in giant pots and, and watching the growth really hit hard and um, where where that the opposite of that is actually growing the tree slowly for an extended period of time and, and taking and it sounds a long time but 15 to 20 years to grow that tree with really good taper with really um, controlled, fine growth, as opposed to the method of, of accelerated growth, and then having to deal with the associated problems which come, which can come with cutting back a tree really hard, yeah. and then having to deal with big stumps. Now that's fine if you love carving and if you love that more um, heavier look, and for for a lot of people. Um, a bonsai is all about the trunk all about that heavy heavy trunk, heavy branching um, but in saying that too like I know from your experience of growing trees and, and the stage should I say of, of what your trees are at your, your trees are going through the, that phase of where you are still developing those, those lower branches and over time I think what you'll end up finding is you'll get to a stage where those lower branches will be right, but your apex will probably need heavy readjustment again and you'll probably grow the tree back on from that stage um, so that they're all growing in balance with each other. But it's, it, there's many different approaches to doing many different things and, and, and your end goal is what is most important. How big do you want the tree? That's That's got to be your starter. Yeah. You know, especially for our natives because they can grow so quick can end up with quite a, uh, an, a mature looking bonsai with a good sized girth trunk which is you know 60 centimeters 50 60 centimeters tall 
um, within five to ten years quite quite easily with our natives with the rate at which they grow. Yep. And that's as a bonsai practitioner who grows, say, black pines, to have that maturity, you're waiting thirty or forty years. You know, in the same time frame, in the same, you know, to get the same result, you know, time frame wise for growing a black pine as opposed to say a leptospermum. Yeah. Um, or a banksia, um, trees that in, especially trees when you're, they're endemic to your area, um, they grow prolifically. Yeah. And so the control of the tree becomes paramount. And, and that, is, that is the challenge for us in growing natives, yeah, I, I feel. So. But they're lots of fun. Well, I mean, on that point that you're making, I think... I've mentioned it before, but I feel like in the world of bonsai these days, as it starts to spread from Japan mm. into all the other countries, in Japan there's a lot of, you know, a lot of the species are native to them, like black pines and things like that. The majority um, of the majority of trees they grow in Japan, there's native species to Japan. But Bjorn has said it on his podcast before too. For the Japanese, it's less about the end result and more about the journey for them oh 100% how to get there so when you look at their trees you see trees that are being grown a lot of them from seed mm. which a, a lot of people in the western world don't want to do um, me included I'd rather just go to a nursery and get a tree that's almost ready for refinement and then yeah the time the time's already been spent mm. you're, you're into the you're, you're just enjoying the fun part but you see the difference in the Japanese tree because they've trained that tree since it was a seedling. And mm. their trees are just so perfect and they've had all that work put into them and it shows. Where <clears throat> what I've been seeing in the Western world is as bonsai starts to become more pop popular and they're trying to push themselves out there into the world of bonsai, everybody's putting forth their Yamadori mm. because it's already big Oh, it's already thick. It's, it's definitely a way to go, yeah. And you can work it a lot quicker yep. and get a show tree in, you know, five, six years mm. from a piece of Yamadori. Yep. Whereas if you were going if you're gonna do it the way the Japanese does it, you're looking at thirty, forty years like you said with the black pines, if yep. you want to mature a tree. Yeah. So, you know, I've been seeing a lot in the world of bonsai at the moment. There's a lot of Yamadori being put forward. And I think, you know, as long as... Uh, here in Australia, it's hard for, to, for, if you... You can't just go into the State Forest National Park and dig up trees. You just, you, if you walk out with a tree and get done by a ranger, you're up for some serious dollars in fines. Oh, not only that, as they keep an eye on you for the next 10 years. And yeah. You, any native tree you've got in your collection, if you can't prove that you bought that or grew it, It could be problematic it. for you. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, you know, permission's the big key, but... It's, I mean, it's just a, a buffet of trees out there for us, you know, and, and you know, finding a way to, to, to get some of that material is uh, is uh, certainly a, a massive step up um, and, a, and a step you know, in the right direction for anyone who's wanting to have a, a mature-looking old bonsai, yep. and especially something that's interesting because we can't we can't shape anything like how mother nature does it no the randomness of of what you know happens in in the environment um 
it's it's too it's impossible for us to replicate. We can come close, but there's there's always a Yamadori or that it always has that special appeal, and you, and you can always look at it and go, wow, that's uh, yeah, from a bonsai point of view, that's that's certainly something that's uh, there's special trees that need uh, special consideration when they're being worked and, and yeah yeah. But, but do you feel that? And this is something that I've kind of been noticing a bit lately too. Is do you feel that girth is becoming too much of a king in the world of bonsai? In terms of, oh look how round that trunk is. Oh that's such a great tree. And it's like, well, there's no movement in that trunk. The ramifications crap. Blah blah blah. Where there could be a little tree, mm. you know, say in a six-inch pot, ten-inch pot, sitting right next to it. Yep. Beautiful trunk movement. Beautiful ramifications. Small foliage. But that little tree won't get a look in next to that big girthy tree. I think it's a look. It's I think a, a size of a bonsai, a big bonsai, is always impressive, um, and it won't even if a a large bonsai with with average movement and average work done to it, sitting next to a a really nicely done shohin. If you're if 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 you're new to bonsai, if you're, you know, you don't you, if you don't understand or can appreciate the work that's gone into a shohin, you might necessarily look at that and go, oh, oh no, the the big guy, look at that, that's impressive because it's, I suppose to them it it could mean something more of a repl- representation of what what is out there in nature. Oh, look at the size of that. Oh, it's a big tree. Yeah. Um, but once you you know, for me, looking at those two, look, I'm going. I'm looking at trees, saying, "Well, what is the bonds? Whoever's worked on this tree, and however they've displayed it, what is the level of display? What is the level of workmanship that's gone into that? And you know, you look up underneath the tree and, and try and work out the branching on how they've done it. Um, you know, is it a traditional sort of uh, sort of styled bonsai, or is it a gendai, more contemporary style? Um, is it more Penjing style? Um, there's there's a number of different styles, you know, that you could style a tree. Um, you know, certainly, you know, what we've been speaking about today, more Australian style, um, and and what is that Australian style? Um, so for me, when I'm looking at trees, I'm looking at the workmanship and 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 how is that display evokes a response or a reaction from me, as opposed to looking at oh, geez, look at the size of that trunk. In saying that too, though, you know, I don't mind a, the, the larger size trees if they're done well. Yeah, that's it. That's so. why I'm saying that sometimes a tree can get a lot of credit just for being big. Oh, look, there's, there's something <laughs> about being, you know, having a bit of girth about you. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so there's something about it. And those trees, um, quite often when you go into, into a show, because those big trees, big trunks, um, sort of those sumo sort of style, style yep. um, it's often at the end of the aisle by itself in a special place because, you know, it's a, it can't really fit anywhere else. So there's this big trunked massive thing with maybe perhaps you know, immature ramification or, you know, only a couple of years of work on the ramification to build it up. Um, it's taking what would be you know, considered a pride of place in, in the exhibition, even though it's not the best tree or, you know, should be in that position. It's there because it's so big it can't go anywhere else. Yep. Or, 
you know, even on a smaller, smaller scale, if you're looking at, say, you know, that next size up from Shohin into a Chuhin size tree, I think it's Chuhin. Yeah, Chuhin. Um, you know, into that next, you know, and you've got a trunk that fills out the pot. And it's, you know, as opposed to a trunk that's a lot more slender with less taper, but perhaps more graceful, as you say. Um, that, that I mean, then we're moving into masculinity versus a feminine sort of um, yeah. display or, you know, feel about the tree. What is more masculine will win in that, in that sort of case, especially to an untrained bonsai eye. Yeah. But it comes down to, like, it comes down to the personal preference. You know, for for myself, a well done, beautiful maple, which is elegant and you know, just crushes the pine, because pines can be a, a poorly done. You know, poorly, if they're put down a really good one, well, it might take over the maple. But uh, you know, average done pine next to a good, well done maple, um, for me, the maple would win. Yeah. You know, because it's the workmanship that gone into the actual tree. Um, <coughs> but um, yeah, big chunks are always popular, and and for us working with a lot of and because our market was is and and has always been or you know no I'll say has always been so small, um, the 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 quality of trees that we're able to purchase as say pre bonsai stock has been average to low. Yep. In, in quality usually because it's there's a need to grow it quickly there's a need to get this to market and so how do we grow it we grow it really quickly big trunk chops you know that's opened up an avenue of oh we can carve this we can do that awesome you know that's another field of bonsai and if you like trees with big hollows and all that awesome but the to get a really beautiful scarless trunk you know, that's years and years in the pot. You know, you know 15, 20 years. Yep. You know, I was listening to a podcast the other day and the, the guy on that was saying, you know, 30 years. For a deciduous. For a deciduous tree. Mm. 30 years to get it into a competition, to, to a cocoa food and um, quality. 30 years. And most of that time it lives in a box. And for the first Wooden twenty, box. for the first twenty years, it looks rubbish. Or mm. it looks okay, but there's always a branch growing off here somewhere yep. to help thicken up or to, to retain strength in that branch. There's always, you know, a scar here or there that they're looking to heal. But by that time, it gets to that thirty-year mark. The, the scars have all healed. You wouldn't know where it's been pruned, and it's got a dense mat of ramification across it. Um, I don't know if we have a native here in Australia that would take 30 years to get to that same level because our trees grow so quickly. Yeah. Um, but, you know, part of uh, being able to find, you know, Yamadori, park trees, whatever the, whatever you can find coming out as a native here in Australia is that, you know, it generally will survive if it's pulled out at the right time of year yep um and that that is a very broad in the growing season so if the tree's growing you're you'll be able to pull it out with pretty good success of the tree coming back now that there are 
exemptions to that rule. Um, other trees that need a you know certain bit of uh, TLC afterwards, um, but on the whole, they all love love water, and almost to the point. I, I don't like to sit any any tree in water, but certainly some of the Casuarina species, you could just take them out, put them into a, pot them into fresh soil once you get them out of um, wherever you pull them from, and um, put them in a little base in the water, and they'll drink that up every day and the off they go again. Well, a lot of my natives sit in a basin of water. Yep. Um, all the melaleucas, they absolutely love it. Yep. Um, swampies, um, yep. they sit in a basin of water. They love it. Yeah, I, this, as I say, I don't like to put any tree in, in water myself, but in saying that, I, I'm around a lot to water. Um, so for me, I have done, when, when I've had other jobs where I've been away from home a fair bit more, there are certain trees, swampies being one of them, that I would. And certainly with the amount of water that my natives take up, I would be considering doing uh, sources for them as well. But um, I, I've been, um, I showed you out the background, been trialling 100% Akadama for yeah. our natives. Um, and they love it. Absolutely love it. And... You know, as I pointed out to you at the back, that not the watering issues that I thought I would have when comparing them to a normal soil. Yes, I need to water them every day, but there's a lot of the, especially with the natives, when I'm using even just a normal potting mix, I'm needing to, they suck up so much water that I'm needing to water them every day anyway. Yep. And that's a normal potting mix sitting next to a, a full 100% Akadama. And I'm watering them at the same time. I'm not having to necessarily water water them. Now, whether or not the Akadama is providing more surface area and it's it's just drying out a little bit slower, um, the tree is utilising it better, um, and I'm not getting as much evaporation as what, say, I am out of the normal soil mix. I, I don't know. I, I haven't gone into it with regards to that. I can only go off what I've been ob- observing on my own benches, but... Uh, at the moment, there's quite a few, there's quite a number of trees, native trees that are next season, or when we come up into September, you know, July, August, September, when we start um, considering repotting, especially of deciduous trees, I'll be doing in 100% Akadama. But when we come up to our growing season, should I say for natives, which will be starting late, mid-October and onwards, yep. when, it, when it starts to really heat up, um, 100% Akadama is what I'm going to be considering as a substrate for a lot of my natives. So well, you've only been in Akadama for one season so far. This is you? the first season, and it's very positive. And you've gotten results that quickly. The small, well, small growth. Yeah, just really small internodal growth, controlled growth. Um, on the ones on the trees. Uh, I showed you with my figs where I've been using a 1-1-1 mix, which is Akadama, pumice and zeolite. Um, incredibly small leaf size. This is my Port Jackson figs, Morton Bay figs. Um, also using it on a nerofolia. And I showed you the two nerofolias sitting next to each other. I think it's salicifolia now. I could get that wrong. It's changed. Anyway, um, I've got the two of them sitting next to each other. One in a... It's a sieved potting mix with pumice and zeolite. 
yep. and sitting next to the 111 Akadama Pumice Zerlite. And internodal growth is, is different. Um, leaf size is different and noticeably different. So very positive results so far. It's only been six months yep. um, for a lot of these trees. For, for some of them, the figs have only been since October. So I'm only looking at four or five months. So I'll still be watching it very carefully. And um, But so far, the results using the Akadama pumice and zeolite mix has, has been very promising. So, yeah, very good. And I mean, I'm only using this for bonsai. I'm not using them for trees that are that are um, that I'm wanting to develop more, because the growth isn't that length no, and strength. Use, only using it for refinement. Yeah, once I've moved the tree into that next stage, um, the refinement is what I'm after, and that is giving me that that substrate mix is giving yeah. me that um, even a, even over and above what I was getting before, which was a sieved potting mix to get rid of all the fines. Yep. Um, and sieved also to remove all the, the large pieces. So I was only using a two and a four mil sieve yep. and using all of that stuff, the, the pine bark and et cetera, that comes in that, um, mixed with pumice and zeolite. And that was probably, a, I would have said, a 50, 30, 20. Yep. So 50% organic, 30% pumice, 20% um, zeolite. And I'm getting better results than that. So, you know, fingers crossed this, the trend continues. <laughs> yeah, well... I'm liking it, liking it so far. Trial by fire, I guess. Well, I think... Yeah, well, <laughs> I, cer- I certainly don't want to lose those trees. So I, I watch, you know, a lot of those trees out there are 30, 40 years old now. Mm. Um, I've had them 20, 25 years, some of them. Yeah. Um, and I was, you know, I've been lucky enough to get trees from other other people who... You know, those trees are 40 to 50 years old already. Um, so that's very... I'm very fortunate in that regard. So I'm... Look, I, I'm i a custodian of these things and so, you know, hopefully to, to hand them over and so I watch them very carefully. Yeah. It's... Um, it's you know, we, we've discussed it today. It's, it becomes lifestyle. Yep. The trees are... What can I do for the trees? Are the trees okay today? What's the weather doing? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm an amateur weatherman too. You got to watch out for these things, and <laughs> what's today doing? I'm watching the news all the time. You know, what's uh, trying to keep on top of that because that's you know probably well that is the most important part of of any sort of pot culture growing trees um, is getting that watering right. I heard a good comment the other day. It's the first thing you learn, but it's the last thing you master. Yep. And I thought that's very very good comment because it's so true. And you know, even now, you know, from the podcast we spoke about before, I got it wrong with that um, beautiful lantana. Yep. And now I've got two lantanas because <laughs> it so uh, that part of the tree all died back, and now it actually all the, the wood um, rotted away, unfortunately, and um, I couldn't protect it quick yep. enough and didn't get to it. And I think the my little dog might have knocked it as well. And uh, now I've got two lantanas. So, oh, I got twice, twice the fun. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. Uh, you know, you talk about the water because one thing at the moment that I've been trialing is I've now got a water holding tank. Yep. And I've been using a lot of rainwater, but for a nursery, 
You know, and it's like the water doesn't last long. No. So any time that the water starts to get low, I'm pumping town water into the holding tank. Yep. Treating it before it goes back out onto the trees. Yep. So I'm very interested to see how the quality of the trees actually do change, giving them controlled water, because I'm keeping the pH of the water between around 6 and 6.5. Yep. Which is good for most most of the plants. Very general, but yeah, like it's a general yeah pH like it, to have it at. It's which a is very fine. middle middle area. Yeah. Um, you know, some of them can go a lot lower than that. Some of them can go a lot higher than that. But yep. it's very very in the middle of. Well, it is. It is the most important thing to the tree. Yeah. Water. Because um, if so. your pH is too high, then the tree doesn't take up as much nutrients. Very true. So, you know, you're basically starving the tree yep. somewhat. And, I mean, having the water sit too, I suppose, the chlorine in the yep. in the, in the the water, and I don't know what you guys have up your way, but and I'm not sure if the Central Coast has it, um, but I know growing up in Sydney there was fluoride in the water as yep. well. I don't know how long that takes to dissipate out of, out of a sitting tank. Um, and it's, look, it's I, I use I've got rainwater tanks here. I use I use them um, when I can. I yep. haven't been able to until the last couple of downpours. Uh, filled them up within the day and then just watched it all overflow <laughs> with a sad face on. But what do you do? Um, and then, um, but I'll, I'll be honest. I, I just use the town water on most on on the trees. Um, when the tanks are empty, I don't sit it or anything like that. Um, should I? I probably should. Well, it'll be interesting to see what results I get. Because mm. our town water, my pH meter only went up to 7.8 and it was knocking it off that. Yeah, my, it's quite hard Very hard water. Hard water. Than, yeah, it's very hard. Um, and not I only that. I think because ours here is about 7.6. Yeah. And so, with all the fires we've been having, yep. the first time that I noticed that our town water was a problem was our fish tank. And we would do a 70% water change, change in the fish tank yep. because it was green. Three days later, it would go green again. Yeah. And we went to the fish shop and we were like, <clears throat> what do you think the problem might be? So they first suggested some zeolite, so we tried the zeolite in the tank. That didn't work. Yep. And then they were like, oh, are there any windows nearby? And we're like, yeah, there's one. No, like, try bl- blocking that out and see what happens. So we blocked that out. Three days later, it went green again. Yep. Tried charcoal filters. Yep. Charcoal in the tank, everything, nothing. And then a couple of weeks had gone by, and we'd gone back in again, and the guy said, look, it's the water from Hunter Water. Yeah, okay. They, because of the fires and all the stuff that lands in the water, they have to treat it a lot harder. Okay. And they were saying that one guy, he had goldfish in his backyard for, I don't know, 15 odd years, and he had filled a pond up with some of the town water and it fried the goldfish. Yeah, okay. That's how bad it was. Yeah, they're really so, heavy. So I was heavy thinking, how much of those chemicals are going into my pots? And that's when I decided to. Well, chlor- chlorine's not good for trees. No. <laughs> Not good for anything. Well, mate, I mean, let's not let's not look at my fish tank over there with the one clean side and three rather algae sides. Um, yeah, look, I've I heard a long time back that 
like um, if you want uh, like junipers actually prefer more alkaline water yep um, and they prefer that more limey sort of uh, that what was it someone said to me I add a little bit of lime to your juniper and it'll actually increase the alkalinity in the soil and the juniper will love it can't say that I actually ever did that yep um, and I'd have to do a little bit more research with regards to that statement um, but um, there is certainly going to be some plants that are going to be uh, favour that more harder water because um, I'm pretty sure here as I said before about 7.6 7.6 because yep. with the before this particular fish tank which just has goldfish in it um, which handle just whatever pretty much those goldfish they're pretty good um, I was always having to adjust um, but then I you know some fish tanks I had a Tanganyikan fish tank which preferred a pH of 8.5 to 9 yep. so I had coral grid all through it and was actually you know, trying to bump the pH up so I mean you can certainly manipulate and if, you, if you've got you know if your trees aren't used to that sort of town water then um, yeah but it'd be you'd be detrimental for your trees to all of a sudden be exposed to that sort of thing but it'd be very interesting to see what your uh, your experiment or testing does well I'm wondering whether that was the main reason why those melaleucas were having a whinge Maybe they were coming from a place that was being fed rainwater out of a dam. Yep. Getting hit with super hard town water and just going, whoa. Well, that, yeah, the water from up, like Ashley up there at the nursery, he he has quite a high iron content, I think it is, in the water. Because everything that gets long-term exposure to that water gets sort of a rusty, sort of like I'm talking about buildings or something that they're getting sprayed with they get like a rusty sort of look to them and the natives get like a black bark yeah which I kind of like yeah they get that it changes the sort of texture it it does grow out eventually but yeah they do get that sort of darker look to them Mm. um I wonder yeah oh look it's 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 what I find interesting about working with our natives is that, you know, obviously we're, there's a lot of people pushing out there trying to explore and trying to find out new things, and that's 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 exciting. That's good. Yeah, you know, that's part of what makes this uh, the Australian bonsai community a, a very interesting thing at the moment. Like, and and the way it's moving forward, especially um, trying to, you know, there was a, the start of a Tasmanian bonsai native group. You've got the Victorian native group. Um, we've got the Australian Symposium on Native Plants as Bonsai. Yep. It's on, is it this weekend or is it next weekend? I think it might be next weekend anyway, down in Canberra, um, which they, they've they had to move and stuff because they had a few problems with the hailstorm that came through the um, at uh, the Botanic Gardens there, apparently punched holes, like massive holes yep. in, in the roofs of the glass houses and all that sort of stuff. There's a lot of damage in Canberra recently with the hailstorm, so they've had to move the event, but it's still going ahead, which is great. Um, one of the uh, Central Coast zone, Rory Archer heading down there from uh, Oz Bonsai, so yep. heading down there for uh, sort of give him a bit of a shout-out if he's going to have a listen. So, But, um, you know, there's a lot of things happening um, in, in Australian Bonsai at the moment, and, and this exploration like what you're doing yourself um you know trying to just take it to the next level and trying to 
find out you know how far can we can push these trees and you know what what sort of heights that we can achieve well i think it's exciting because as we spoke about earlier on today you can take a black pine and you can make it look like a black pine you can take a juniper and make it look like a juniper but when you get an australian native sat in front of you mm. now what and that's what i was saying with i've got six leptos in my collection mm. now and every single one of them is a different style yeah let's see which one of those styles works out the best well i showed you that um there's an article that we that i that i've um reproduced there was a article from 2001 and uh by a gentleman by the name of milton larvin who has since passed away but he was the president of the uh, central coast bonsai club and um, he came up with uh, quite an interesting article on the five different styles of, of gum tree that we see out there, you know, ranging from your Mallee style with the multiple trunks, you could almost call it a clump yep. sort of style, um, to your tall, towering, um, I think he called them a Boab sort of style, where it's a really tall, ta- uh, sorry, he called them Mountain Ash style, really tall, towering, straight trunk with you know, only sparse foliage up the top of the tree. Yep. Um, and there was a couple of other styles there as well. Um, one was a, um, he called it a hasten style. And this was after a um, painter and um, really thick, old, sort of fire ravaged trunk, which is, you know, snapped in half but regrown again to become, a, you know, this uh, magnificent tree in the forest or in the bush. Um, so. I think exploring the that Australian aesthetic is something that will continue to evolve yeah. over, over time um, as we find, you know, and and you know, do we need to? And, and this is the thing, and we we spoke about it before, you know we can always bring things back whether you know okay is it a penging literati style is it a you know can you make that a more of a, a windswept you know well that's a japanese style you know, where do we find ourselves in that in that design because i think we're getting on top of the horticulture yeah i think it's it's becoming more and more understood that you know working with these trees whether they be casuarina calistamon melaleuca even the eucalypts, if they're in growing, in a growing phase, you can be, you know, you can root prune them, you can repot them, you can do this work to them quite comfortably without them suffering too much. Yep. Um, yeah, as long as they're in that warm, warm periods, you know, for us here in the central coast, you know, we're looking at October through till I like to say end of February, but you could probably push it for the northern parts of the central coast and further further north, especially into the northern New South Wales, Queensland area. Um, you could be pushing that into the end of March. As you head north into the Rockhampton and Townsville, and I mean, those guys are in the in the tropics. Yep. You could be working ficus at any time of year. Um, root pruning, defoliating, hard cutbacks, um because the accelerated growth that they're getting, um, there is no downtime. They're just growing up there. You know, the further south you get, you have those periods of slower growth where it's not advisable to work on Australian natives. Yeah. 
you know, especially figs and those more tropical species of our natives. Um, <coughs> pardon me. Um, but the horticulture side, you know, they love food, they love water. Um, some more than others, even within the same species, is even within the same group of trees. Like we we're talking about calistamins, there are calistamins that grow by, you know, with, with big weeping habits that have huge water reserve requirements that live near streams and along with she oaks that live along riverbanks. Whereas there are other she oaks that live further away from the riverbank. And if we were to treat them the same, you know, it's almost like you know. You know, treating a redwood the same as a swamp cypress. Yeah. You know, they, they look the same, look very similar, but if we do the same thing to them, you know, that, that's probably not a, a good comparison. But, you know, especially when she oaks, there are she oaks that, that can live in quite dry conditions quite comfortably. And you could probably just saturate them too much putting them in. So even within that, we need to know what tree we're working with. But on the whole, our natives love water, love food, love sun. And if we work on them in that growing period, it's it's all, all guns blazing, let's go. Yeah, well, I think the, the beautiful thing about our natives is that I'm discovering is they live in a very harsh environment here and they've become very hardy plants. Yep. And um, things like a bottle brush, they can get a bit of shock and drop every <laughs> leaf on the tree. Yeah. A couple of weeks later, they'll come back with a brand new flush of growth. Absolutely. I... Um, I had a, um, what do you call it, uh, I think they're Peter Sonny eye, aren't they, Leptospermia? Uh, that's a lemon-scented one? Yeah, yeah. Oh, brilliant tree to work with. Yeah, well, as you know, if you let if you let that apex get too dominant, it'll start actually dropping some of its bo- bottom branches, some of its bottom leafing, and I had one... It was just a stock tree, hadn't been worked, it had only been developed and grown. And because it hadn't really been touched, the top of the tree had become very uh, apically dominant. And the bottom branches were very sparse, very thin, not a lot of growth on them. And I'd actually cut this really tall tree. I'm fine. Um, I actually cut this really tall tree back to the bottom growth that was sparse and um, very thin and unhealthy looking. And that is very quickly, I only did that two or three weeks ago, and it's very quickly just shooting, becoming full, healthy, it's getting an apex, because it had no apex, it was just all twigs and sticks basically. All those twigs and sticks have now got little buds that have popped on them. Oh, look... With, uh, with our natives, it doesn't take long. And this is where, like we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast, where, or should I say, learning how we control the energy distribution the um, of the tree, um, learning how to do that is going to be very important for, for working with your natives because they do, are so apically strong. And, you know, I've, I, the way the way I grow a lot of my maples, if I'm growing them in pots um, for that scarless look, and I've got a couple out there that I've been working on now for, well, there's three, 
three that I've been working on, two that I've been working on for about four years, five years, and they've got trunks probably size of a 50 cent piece at the moment. Yep. With half decent taper, they're only about 30 centimetres tall, both trees. Maybe a little bit taller, one of them. Um, and the other one was an older tree that I've cut back yep. and I'm regrowing again. Now, those trees were grown in in a fashion that I, I actually learnt this as a, as a method for growing Chinese elm um, through, I think it was Peter Adams. It may have even been like a Peter Chan way of growing trees. Now, then that, that involves growing the trunk, always maintaining, like if you are growing, um, you know, you want a certain thickness, you grow it to roughly two-thirds the thickness and then you cut back to a new leader, um, preferring the cut in the back of the proposed front, future front of the tree. Growing that on, perhaps with a branch, perhaps not. Once that leader attains a thickness of roughly two-thirds of where you want it, we cut it back down to a shorter area. And with our natives especially, we could do this because they bud so heavily off old wood. Yep. Um, and, and generally, we're getting buds in all the right places. Um, Melaleuca, Callistum, all of the Casarina, they all do it. They all bud off the old wood, especially if you're doing a, a grow and cut technique in this. And I wonder whether or not, because I was, I was applying those, those techniques to Japanese maples and Chinese elms, and I wonder whether or not we will gain, have better control of our natives growing in such a way where we can really hammer the apical dominance of the tree by doing hard, hard cuts yep. back down to what you, you know, first branch, allowing that to thicken up. That improves taper from base to tip. We cut back hard. Because, I mean, for me, too, it's about attaining really nice taper. Yep. You know, to get very, very nice taper in a tree is quite hard. It's very hard in a tree that's been stump cut. Yep. And has been this really hard growth. And I suppose that's where I was trying to ask, you know, say before, should I say, um, you know, those differences between pot-grown tree for 30 years and, you know, a tree that was grown in the ground for 15 and then... Very, very different trees. Yeah. You can't really even look at those two trees side by side and say, oh, yeah, they're both Japanese maples, but they're very, very different trees. One's this elegant... One's generally going to be more elegant than the big stump-cut, carved, masculine-looking thing. Um, and I suppose that's, in a way, why you know, the, to the Japanese, a lot of these deciduous trees are supposed to be feminine, they're supposed to be elegant, they're supposed to have great beauty, whereas um, they associate... You know the, the large, you know, whole hollow trunks and shari, you know, scarred trunks and dead branches, gins. You know, the, all those sort of things. They they regard them as masculine. Yeah. That's why you don't see them on their feminine trees. Um, but for us here in Australia, with our natives, you know, it's not uncommon to have eucalypts hollowed out by fire, or you know, big scars down a, a melaleuca where in the wind or whatever come through and it's just ripped a branch off and there's a big scar in a fig or something like that that's quite common in australia we have extremes of weather yeah so but it's good to good to and, and there are still other other 
other Australian natives that we're still finding out that we can use and, and, and are having regular success with the repotting, with the work that they're doing. Um, you know, I'm working on my... Um, I, I, when I out the back, I've picked up a couple of cheap um, Norfolk Island pine. Now, it's not a, not a traditional bonsai subject, and, and even as a bonsai, you're probably going to be after a bigger tree. That doesn't worry me. I, I'm, I'm all about bigger trees. Um, that may change, though, in 20 years when I can't lift them. <laughs> but the techniques for working on, or what I've noted with regards to, I've, I've got them home, pruned them straight away. Um, didn't prune them hard, just did a bit of pruning on each branchlet because they're massive compound leaf. Yep. Um, so did a pr- bit of pruning here and there, and they work the same as a um, um, like a hoop pine. Uh, so yeah, the hoop pine or a wallamai pine. Um, there's also the other one, oh, monkey puzzle pine i think it's i forget the actual um botanical name but yeah same husbandry as those yep so i know that over time it'll take a long time with with that particular tree um it'll take a long time to thicken up it'll take a long time to to give me any sort of taper it's going to take a long time to develop branches but i'm not for me i'm not concerned about that but it's interesting to note that it's another native that we could use yeah Norfolk Island pine. I've actually got a, a Norfolk Island hibiscus as well. Beautiful flowering hibiscus. It comes from Norfolk Island. How cool. I was pretty stoked with that when I found that up at the native nursery. Um, my, my local native nursery I go to all the time. Yep. So I'm trying to pick up... I, I'm quite often buying tube stock, which, you know, I, I, I get home sometimes and just shake my head and go, what the hell are you doing, mate? You've got 40-odd... 40, 50 sometimes, you know, bonsai that are in refinement or development slash refinement stage. And then you've got another 20-odd, 30-odd sitting there in development stage. And then you've got your grow trees on top of those, which are all in development stage. So they're all requiring work all the time. And you go and buy a couple of tubes started, tube stock. <laughs> of, of, and, like, I'm buying, I'm loving gums at the moment. So out the back here I've got um, four different gums out the back here and I've got seven different gums up at the nursery yep um, so and I've got a couple of uh, I've got the an engoffer as well which is virtually you know it's just a Sydney red gum um, but uh, yeah so different heaps of different trees uh, that I'm trialling and, and and trying to grow um, I'm also trying to control like there's a couple of gums out the back where the gums up at the nursery are just on full full steam ahead. I feed them the, the stuff that they sell up at the nursery, which is if you want to develop trees, that stuff is like just uh, uh, incredible. It's really, really good good fertiliser for your trees that they sell up there at the nursery um, at Gillaby. And it's, um, but for here at home, I've got the gums on a, on a full organic um, and very rationed, very staged and set up so that I can elicit as small a growth as possible on, yep. on these gum trees. Even though they're quite young trees, these are... Like, I, I put one from a 6-inch to an 8-inch pot 
and it has filled the pot with roots within three months. Yeah, right. And it's ready to go up. And it's already starting, I'm already starting to see in the extensions on it um, that the internodes are slowing down. The leaves are actually getting smaller already and it's in a black training pot. So how that, and in this, uh, once we get, I mean, they can obviously grow these gums. They're, they're down at the collection and these are old bonsai that have been grown for a long time. Um, admittedly, there's one or two of the gums at the National Collection in Canberra that, um, to me, in my opinion, not as suited to being bonsai as what, say, there's a, the, we spoke about a sweet apple gum down there, which is Ted Poynton, I think his name was. Excuse me if I got that wrong. Um, an absolutely stunning tree um, that's down there. Um, gum tree, big. It'd be up, up around the metre, metre ten sort of size. Yeah. Um, but there are a couple of others that, that just haven't been able to get the ramification. They haven't been able to get the leaf size down. Um, so within gums themselves there are going to be more suited varieties and i suppose for me that's part of the journey for me is trying to find more suited varieties but certainly the ones that i've chosen so far have, have all um been really good so the sydney blue gum um the nikolai try growing a there's i'm growing a sweet apple a gum as well um the um angophora uh, there's a couple of i suppose you fancy gums I suppose with the fancy flowers and they only get to about two or three metres there's a couple of those that I've got out the back as well which I'm but I don't necessarily like to grow dwarf varieties for bonsai because they already take a long time to grow yeah. but in saying that Australian natives growing so quickly maybe dwarf varieties are a way to go because I, 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 when I say dwarf varieties I'm thinking like dwarf pines or dwarf spruce yep as far as growing those for bonsai, if it's not already a metre tall and you can work on it and bring it back down to a more manageable size, they only get to a metre tall within like 30 years, some of those miniature dwarf species of spruce and pines. Like, that's a long time to mm. be only getting a metre of growth. Now, for some people, that might be the ideal bonsai, you know, and perhaps some of our dwarf varieties, maybe they won't grow quite as quickly. Maybe they won't grow. They'll be a little bit more easier to control. Um, but, you know, within, this, within different gums, there's going to be ones that are suitable and not. Within different calistamins, there are ones that are more suitable and not, ones that will reduce in leaf size into nodal growth quicker than others. Yep. So they'll have a naturally smaller flower. You know, the, these are, this is where we need to start picking, picking uh, types of tree that that are, are going to be more suited to what we want in the end goal. So, yeah. yeah. Well, we, need, we, need, we you know, like you're doing, we need more people to trial these things, trial these different pines that you're trialling and yeah, all these different gums and stuff. It's, um, also, too, like at the moment I'm trying to, I'm trying to get a lot of it on paper or in, into the computer so that it's not just in my head. Yep. Um, so that I can start... You know, getting this, getting more information out there for people so that they can uh, have just greater confidence in in working. Because I'll see people. You know, you put a juniper in front of someone in or in front of them in a, in a workshop, 
And um, I'll go, yeah, no worries. Bang, 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 bang. No worries. And this is for someone who's been doing bonsai for a little bit. But then you put a native in front of them and go, there you go. Have a go at that. Like, work on that one. And they go, oh, yeah. I don't really want to cut that. And, what, and you know, we were talking about it before. Okay, so let's let's see it as design that one, yeah, in an Australian way. You know, where does that, you know, how does that look compared to designing an Australian native in a in a Japanese bonsai aesthetic. way? Mm. Yeah, in a Japanese aesthetic, the triangle. Um, you know, in, I mean, that's a very broad brushstroke that I've just used there, saying the triangle, because there are other shapes within uh, bonsai. Yeah. You know, flame style for ginkgos and you know the clump style with the big broom and and there's there's all different styles and 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 therefore shapes within bonsai itself um and so that was very broad of me to say you know, the triangle but that is the general consensus really if you end up with a triangle you can actually have something that is quite aesthetically pleasing to the eye yep but it won't look anything like what we see outside when we're walking around here in Australia, that's not how our trees grow. But I was, it's interesting though, because I was talking to, um, we had a, a guy called Doug Harris come up and do a, a talk at our local club just on the weekend gone. And um, he was talking about natives, talking about um, gums. And um, he was saying that part of when the, um, Europeans, English first came here and set up the colony. A lot of the land was actually cleared and burnt out. There wasn't this bush, this impenetrable bush, um, around at that time because the the Aboriginal people would would burn. Yep. On a consistent, regular basis. So there wasn't this bush that we see. And if you look at early um, drawings of the settlements and and all of the there's actually big open spaces of land in between sections of bush that are still bushy, but they just hadn't been burned out for a couple of years. You know, the, the local people hadn't got to that area yet, but they were certainly had a plan for burning out and, and, and that. And so what he was saying was that a lot of the trees that we see around us are less than, are less than 200 years old. Yep. So where in that does what becomes ancient for us as, as, as an Australian bonsai artist looking to find an Australian aesthetic of, of what, we're, what, a, what an Australian tree looks like, our reference around us is young trees. Yep. Comparatively. You know what I mean? Like a gum tree, some of these gum trees they're estimating are up to a thousand years old. Some of the really old ones that were here when they arrived, when the Europeans first arrived. Some of the ones, especially down in Tasmania and Victoria, some of those massive mountain ash that went into building you know, Melbourne. Yep. Um, they were huge and they, they could have easily been up around that six, seven, eight hundred thousand years old. What did they look like? Yeah. We don't know. Our reference around us, and even looking outside now and looking at what is, you know, what we would think is an untouched piece of land, you know, it's actually, for any Australian walking around in our bush, if you're not on the path, 
it's virtually impenetrable in areas our bushland yeah you know it's just bloody hard to work to get through it took them however long 30 years to get across the blue mountains it's not that far to get to the blue mountains from where the you know the first settlement was is you know you could probably make it in a few days but it took them 30 years to get over because they stopped burning the land yeah and within a decade it was just this impenetrable bush um and there's a funny thing he was saying too he was talking about how over in California, they're having wildfires like we do here in Australia, they're having wildfires in California. And it's the eucalypt forests that they planted 20 years ago or therefore, or 10 years ago, however long, they planted eucalypts. And they, they've never had a tree that dumped that much rubbish and that much fuel yep. for a fire. And now they're having massive wildfires, massive problems with fires in, in California. It's the eucalypts burning. They have never had firebombs for trees their trees are normally slow burners and the they, eucalypts are firebombs boom up the thing goes you know and the leaves are full of like oil and stuff as the whole well. tree's oil mm. it's ready to go <laughs> it's a bomb and that's that's what happened that's i mean the the horrible fires that we just had you know that's just and it, we've had an extensive drought big big um weather problems here in australia with the drought and the ensuing fires and now flooding, you know, we, we certainly cop all all of it here in, in our country. But it's um, so getting back to what we referenced though as bonsai, there are some really tall old trees over in Western Australia that you can actually climb. They've got um, pegs in them. You can climb up these trees. Yeah, um, they're about two hundred and eighty feet, just under a hundred meters tall, sort of thing. So they're quite old. They're quite big. Um, you know that those are the trees. These old mountain ash down in Victoria. There's, I, I'm not 100 percent sure if if there are any left. I sincerely hope there is. Um, but they're the things that we need to be looking at as reference for us. You know, how do we store? How do we, especially when it comes to eucalypt, what's an old eucalypt look like? Because you generally don't see them with the downward facing branch. Yeah. You know, if the branch is down. The secondary branching is pointing straight to the sky. Yeah. And what I've found, and what what I've, what's what's been noted by a few people I've spoken to about it is, if that bottom branch is down and the secondaries are up, as the apex continues to grow, the tree slowly kills that branch off segment by segment, so it it knocks off the end back to a secondary branch pointing facing straight up. Yep. And then a couple of years later, a year later, whatever, as the drought continues, as it's dry, whatever, if it's full of rain, and there's what it'll probably keep it. But if it's hard times, it compartmentalises back to the next upward-growing secondary branch. And so quite often we see um, older eucalypts with these twists, like the, the branch will come out downwards, but then it shoots straight up. Yep, and then coils back on itself as it, the weight of the foliage became too much for that upright, and it falls back down on itself, and then those uprights start going up, and then that whole cycle of growing, aging, decaying, yep. growing, aging, decaying, and we see these especially in trees like the angophora, some incredibly twisting and turning and gnarly shapes. Um, you know, some of those, there's a, 
the Strickland State Forest, but also two up at Summersby Falls. Some of those trees up there, they're just growing like they've melted on the rocks. Oh, I've seen some of the ones at Summersby. Yeah. Where it's just roots over the rock everywhere. It has melted on that rock. It, it looks unbel- It looks like someone has just... Like just set it to a slow slow burn, like a butter sizzling, you know, yep. like, or something sizzling, and it's just like play doh just melted on bleh, all over it. It's just they are unreal. Yeah, and they're just hanging on. Oh, and uh, the grip they've got on those rocks is incredible, and and to think too, because those roots disappear, they don't actually go off into uh, other sets of soil or anything like that. Those roots disappear into the rock. Yeah. So, I mean, admittedly, it's summers before, so there is a water source close by for those particular trees. But those those roots, they're just, uh, like, you've got to think, that tree grew there as a seedling, and it's, it's got up to that. So and these are huge trees, they're big mm. trees. But incredible the way they grow. Yeah, Emma went down there to do a photo shoot one day, and she ended up starting to take photos of all the... Um, all the trees. All the trees. She got home, she goes, I'm going to kill you. I was, said, why? She goes, I was supposed to be working, shooting a model, and I'm over there shooting trees. <laughs> oh, mate, it was funny. I took the kids down there, and, you know, as you should, you, you take a few photos of the kids, and I, I was doing the same thing. I was taking photos of these root mass, the roots on the rocks and these awesome <laughs> trees, and, you know, my, my daughter's there making poses in the in the corner of the photograph, and there's this tree. <laughs> there's my daughter in the corner with the pose. Going, oh, I'm here, I'm here. Yeah, 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 I can see you, darling. Yeah, look at that tree. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, look the the scope of the scope and the the amount of 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 knowledge still to, still to be gained is incredible. So it's um it's it's for us and natives. Yeah, it's going to be a, a, a good good fun going ahead. Yeah, and I mean, as you know, I've been doing a lot of experimenting with melaleucas lately. Mm. And, um, yeah, they're a hard plant to figure out, you know. A lot of them, um, they all seem to shoot around the base. And you think, what can I do with that? Like, Yeah, look, it depends. Are you talking about you're doing major trunk chop on them and then they're coming back from the base, or...? Even if, um... Even if the tree's healthy, yep. if it wants to reshoot, it'll shoot from the base. So mm-hmm. I've done, I did some a while back. I mean, some people who follow us on Instagram might have seen, I did a time-lapse video where I got a bunch of melaleucas and bended them, twisted them, and I did them in all different um, shapes. Mm. So I did one as like a literati kind of shape I did some cascading ones I did some you know how you would twist a shimpaku you would twist it around and then back on itself and did a few like that and they all reacted very differently to the different styles and I haven't figured out why that was yet but what I think I have figured out is they will always shoot closest to the first crack so you're talking about you shaping... Okay, so, so you, say you've you're got doing a, trunk shaping. Yeah, so okay, say you've yep. got a dead straight melaleuca. Yep. And you know what it's like when you're shaping a melaleuca. Crunch, crack, crack, crack. Yeah, they... Crunch, they crack, crack, crack. Very, very crackly, those ones. So, and, and look, when you're dealing with 
well, what I find is when you're dealing with um, trees that are very snappy like that, um, I'm working with a Kalitrix out, out at the moment. Um, it's in 100% Akadama. I'm getting nice small growth. I can't bend that thing to save my life. Even stuff as thick as a like, a, even down to sort of just under a pencil thick, it just wants to snap all yep. the time. So I'm I'm bringing my wiring gauge in, like a, my pitch in a little bit, rather than at 55, 50 degrees thereabouts. I mean, on 40 degrees even. Yeah. To try and get a little bit more wire surf wire surface actually contacting with with the actual tree. Um, it doesn't bother the Melaleucas though. I, I've had them to the point where I've literally snapped the trunk and where the snap is, you've got two jagged yep. bits of wood coming off. Yep. It doesn't bother them. They yeah. don't die back. I've had them all live. Yep. I've had I've had client, uh, um, like customers and stuff come through and they've seen them and looked at them and gone, oh, wow, that's a bit brave because <laughs> there's just gnarly bits sticking off when yeah, they've yeah, snapped, yeah. but they've been like that for months. And yeah. haven't died off, but what I do find is it's always at the point of that first break, which is always down low. Yep. Because you don't want the tree straight for the first part of it, so you'll do your first bend, yep. crack, snap, and then you do your next crack, snap, crack, snap. So crack. does the does the rest so above that first crack does that all die? Nope. That all stays alive. It you all just stays get a alive. bud from that. And it, you get a bud from that first crack area. You get about 10 of them. Yep. And do you, you don't get budding above that as well? Nope. So do it, but it doesn't die? It doesn't die. So if you were to remove all of those buds, what happens then? It buds in the same area. Again? Again. And so long term, that, so long term that's unsustainable for the rest of the tree. So because If you want to develop the rest of the tree, yes. Well, okay, so so by that token, I would ask you if 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 you're not wanting to develop the rest of the tree, there's no point wiring it in the first place. Well, what you would have to do is what I'm now going to be playing around with. Yep. Is so say we've got the dead straight melaleucas. Yep. <clears throat> We're talking about the eight dollar ones from the nursery. Yep. So what I've experimented with. Are they the white white ones? Yeah. Oh, they're a nightmare. So don't use that Melaleuca. <laughs> no. I, I don't know. Oh, look, I love those Melaleucas because they're so white. The trunk is glistens white in the sun and they've got a really beautiful limey green foliage and they've got that really fine powder puff looking flower as well, but it's lacy. It's not... Yeah, it's an alternifolia. Yeah, it's a beautiful looking little tree. Um, but they are the most snappy things ever. We were using up there at the nursery instead of wiring those. We were they were using a cut and grow for a little bit to try and get more angular movement in the trunk, which isn't a bad thing because angular movement, angular movement, should I say, in a fast growing tree, soon becomes fluid movement yep. rather than sharp angles because the the tree is always going to put on a lot of growth on the inside curve um, and try and straighten it out. Well, what I've discovered with mm. what I've been doing mm. is... So, say I took all these and I experimented with them with the thing. And the one thing I discovered is the cracking... 
doesn't actually harm the tree per se. It'll live. Yep. And I've got ones that are seven, eight months since the first, let's call it the first cracking. First cracking. <laughs> what does Hugh, Hugh came up with the thing? I'll, I'll pay him dibs on this one. If you ain't breaking it, you ain't making it. <laughs> <laughs> I love that comment. I was like, oh, very apt. So, um, what happens is, crack, 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 you get mm. your shape in it. Because, as you said, you can't bend these things without cracking and breaking them. They're very just hard happen. on those ones, yeah. So, what always happens for me is around the base somewhere where that first bend and crack is, you'll get your new shoots. Yep. But up the rest of the tree, you won't get the shoots. So, what I've been doing is, and the next thing I'm going to experiment is I'm going to go halfway up the tree and crack it and just leave it. And then see if the buds come out right below that crack. And that will cement my theory. Well, without doing anything to the bottom you're talking about yeah leave the bottom dead straight yeah gotcha crack it halfway up the tree leave it and see if the buds come halfway up the tree which I'm guessing they're going to yeah well that's a wound so that's a wound reaction from the tree but this seems to be how the melaleucas respond Mm. and then they won't bud any further up the top where you want them to so what I've been trying now is I've got one tree that's in this phase right now where I've got this shape of the tree that I put out with wire, but where the first crack is, I've got a nice, big, thick, basically new leader that's coming out of there. Right. So now I'm growing that on because... Well, see, the, 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 well my question is, is the stuff that you've... On that particular tree, you, you've wired out all this, the rest of the tree. You Like, okay, so... You're obviously happier with the way that, for argument's sake, a sacrifice branch. You're happier with the way the sacrifice branches has has turned out, and you're happier with that line, which is it. Quite often happens when you're growing sacrifice branches. You go, oh, actually, that's a really nice line. Oh, oh hang on, if I do that, oh, hang on, oh, and the rest of the tree becomes sort of uh, redundant. If, however, you were to, oh no, I've got to keep this work that I've already done, and you wanted to keep that part of the tree. Would it survive if you were to cut those buds off all the time? Would the tree reevaluate and say, "Well, hang on, I've got to keep sending up to this, otherwise he's not letting me have any of those buds"? Would it still survive? Like, is that, or is that always going to be? No, if you if you crack it there, it's not going to survive above that point. Well, here's the funny thing: it does yeah. survive above that point. But you were saying it doesn't get any buds. But it doesn't bud, so. But that's what I'm saying. That's unsustainable stops. over a long period. The development on that branch stops. Will it, will it continue to grow later on, though? It's like a detour. No, no, absolutely. And I totally understand what you're saying so there. So now that almost should... becomes a sacrifice branch where the new parts come out as a crack, yeah. or where the crack is, and it's grown a new shoot. Yeah. What, it, what I normally find is it grows in almost like a whirl pattern. Yeah, that's, so, the, that's so you've the top got, of the compartment. Yep. So you've got your choice of about five or six new leaders. So you can have... So my, my argument to that, though, is why wouldn't you just cut at that point? Or well, it, work out where the compartment is. Well, that's where I'm going. And, and then cut at that point above the compartment. Rather than wiring and doing all that sort of stuff, just cut the tree. No, no, well, what I'm saying is 
that that's just the experiment I first started with when I wired right. all them trees. That's not what I'm doing now. Okay, okay. Because when I wired all the trees, mm. I had this weird thing where they all reshot, but they all reshot at the base. Right. And I had to step back and say, why the hell did they all shoot at the base? But now I've got... So, picture this. Now, now I've got crack. three cascading Melalukas. Yep. But they've all... They've all shot at the base, not down the bottom of the cascade where I really want them to shoot. Right, okay. I've got this literati tree, yep. and it's shot at the base, not up the top of the tree where I've wanted it to shoot. So now what I'm experimenting with is you've got a little bit of your tree. You've got a tree that's massive and long, but yep. it's dead straight, cracking the first part of it. Yes. Now your future plan is... I'm not going to use any of this stuff because yeah, I know I'm not it. going to get any buds. Yeah. I'm going to get another five around this crack site. Yep. I can choose the best of those five in terms of line. Mm. I can work that up. Now that's nice and healthy. I can cut the original off. Now I can get this and go crack. Yep. Not going to use this. It's going to produce five more. Yep. Five or six, seven. <coughs> I mean, I'm not talking the exact numbers here, but I'm just no, saying. No, no, no. I understand it, what you're saying. It's going to give you quite a few options. Now well, you can suppose, choose one of them. Well, you know, what, almost, you you know, know what's it, interesting about that? So I know you're right. You go. It, it's not a clip and grow method. It's, it's a, a crack, crack and grow. grow. Oh, here we go. <laughs> here we go. A crack and go. This is a bonsai in exclusive here. <laughs> I love it. We're, well, we're you know break, what's funny, though? Because. Because. Um, Dave and I, we've been, we've been working with that. Um, uh, com- by convector Melaleuca well this is alternofolia by yeah. the way so it's it's also pretty snappy though um, it papers up quite a lot though um, which the one you're talking about does, does. it paper up yeah. quite, it does paper papers up quite up excessively yeah. yeah so where we're having issues with the by convector is um, we're trunk chopping we trunk chopped in the ground and left it it's shooting from the base of the tree. We collected a couple as well, um, put them in the hothouse, um, kept them warm. Um, they're all shooting from the base of the tree. I wonder whether at all. See, we need to be able to collect and have it shoot from the top. So I wonder whether or not cracking them in the ground letting them reshoot at a spot and then working out the collecting so that we maintain that and don't get that basal growth. Yep. You might be onto something with regards to cracking the branches though to get growth further down because that's obviously breaking the, the actual bark. It's part of the problem with the Melaleuca is, or paper bark as it's commonly known is the bark, the cork cambium gets so thick that it makes any adventitious adventitious buds redundant they, they can't pop they can't out throughout through. with a crack though you're obviously exposing enough of that to okay. be able to oh, hang on a sec the meristem is actually exposed here to enable a quick heal what a lot of trees will do is actually pop buds from that wound site yeah the black pine does it with regards to candle pruning yeah um it reacts to um it reacts to being wounded or damaged by sending a lot of nutrients to that area, a lot of energy to that area, and quite often that can be in the form of buds popping out. We see it on deciduous trees sometimes too. 
so maybe that might be something that we can you know practice on the thousand by convector that are that that we have access to um and and then just perfect the actual pulling out of the out of the ground you know perhaps it's going to need a little bit more you know like with the pine or a juniper you're pulling out and you're leaving a lot of that ground soil in there that microbial activity that's so important to those trees perhaps they're needing that perhaps perhaps we left them in the hothouse too long yep um, perhaps the hothouse got too hot on a couple of days because there were a couple of really hot days where even though they were in a cooler spot in the hothouse you're probably still looking at 50 degrees in there yeah it's pretty hot for any tree you know so yeah there's still a lot of you know, I know Hugh's working quite hard up there at Tree Makers with regards to his hothouse, and he's been having excellent collection results. Um, you know, nearing to a hundred percent collection success rate. Um, you know, he's you know he's really using that hothouse to his advantage, but he's he's also monitoring it religiously yeah. and rigorously. Um, so, you know, there's still. But that's you know that's an interesting thing. Maybe maybe that's that's a way we can get lower down foliage, just cracking or breaking branches in the ground, leaving it to regrow. Come back in a couple of weeks, preparing the tree. Perhaps we need to dig around. You know, if we're pulling out Yamadori, perhaps we need to dig a trench around, fill it with soil, give the tree a good drink. Um, a lot of these trees, their native trees, have two root systems. You know, I've got a root system that sits around the base of the tree that, for a lot of the time in drought periods, is is redundant it's not being used yep you know they've got this long tap root that's at the water source you know and hopefully that doesn't dry out because that's what's keeping the tree alive um you know and we come along and go oh look it's got all these roots around there well they're not actually working or alive you know it's a lot of the time it can dry and desiccate right back you know and then boom rain comes all those roots proliferate again you know and quite often the success you know or the success rate is is markedly higher um, post-rain. Yeah. So, you know, that's that's obviously a key sign of how much water is an integral part of our native trees. Well, I um, think the good thing about the, the cracking and getting buds at the crack site is um, if, if that is working the way I think it is, hmm. then you can almost get what you want out of the tree. And you can get some really interesting shapes too because the one I'm working on at the moment, I managed to bend it around a bit and then crack it. Yeah. So it was kind of facing... In the the right direction. In the right direction. And then when the new bud come out, it was able to come back in kind of like a V shape. Right, okay. You're never going to get that bend with wire. No. So now I've got... Well, I mean, that's... I've got a tree that comes up. You've expanded on the clip and grow to be crack and go. Crack and go. Crack and grow. (laughs) So... (laughs) no longer clip, clip and grow to a butt angle it's crack and go to to to, to get butt angles mm. um and if you can achieve that same thing on a melaleuca branch for ramification well look i don't i don't uh advocate or encourage anyone to go out there and start cracking their melaleuca <laughs> but at the same time well you know, it is worth them. it is worth yeah it is worth having an experiment um on trees that are of lesser value to you if you if you don't, I mean, I'm, I know we spoke about it a couple of weeks ago at the um, beers and bonsai, um, how you have your demolition tree. Is demolition that tree, yeah, yeah. The demolition tree. Um, but I like there. 
you know, ways to actually sort of get trees to be moving too is to, you know, you manipulate branches in such a way that you only move them a little bit and let the trees settle, move them a little bit more. Um, you know, what you've spoken about before and you know, grabbing a piece of a branch that you've cut off and testing it by bending it back on itself, you know, trying to find out its breaking limit. So, you know, all of these things, you know, that colitrix out there, same sort of thing, except it's kept growing on the actual branch that was was bent and broken. I had quite a bad split. Yep. Um, broke one half half of the, the, the branch, you know, I had the double split on, on either side. I actually came through and cleaned it up, though, and made a, and cleaned the wound up, put wound healer on it. Um, and the branch continued to grow, no worries. Um, and the split is now healing on that colitrix. Um, I'm glad it's split because it's got a much better angle than the weak angle that I would have got weak, what I would classify as a weak herb end, yeah. you know, mug handle bend, teacup tea bend, whatever you want to call it, um, hook bend, C bend. Yeah, you really don't want those big radius bends. You've got to try and move you away from those. You want to get them those. tight. Yeah, you've got to get them as tight as possible. Um, old trees, and, and like especially on you know, our natives where we do see a lot of drought, and so our native trees will have limbs die off partially. Yeah. And then you've got this upright growing piece of that branch that decides to go for the sky again because they get a bit of rain. Yep. And so those these rather unusual branch angles are actually quite indicative of our of our natural look in a lot of ways. Um, but yeah, and that you know takes us back again to Australian design. Australian trees you know and it's um, it's going to be something that is continued to be discussed and continued to be you know talked about but then you know it comes to you know you know what we were speaking about earlier is that it, it really you know for for Westerners as such it comes all under the umbrella of being bonsai yep um, so it just becomes an Australian style of, of how we style our trees and you know certainly the Melalucas have a have a style. Um, and it uh, changes too from where you go because the style of trees that you guys have further down here yes. are different to what we have up there and I spoke about this on the Beers and Bonsai podcast that I guess we have more of a higher coastal area. Yep. Where I am. Yep. So I guess that's the style you would call it, like a high coastal style, where all the tops of our trees are dead. Mm. And the foliage is further down. So you end up with these trees that have got a lot of a lot of foliage as an apex, but out the top of that apex is a lot of dead wood. Yeah. Because we get all those winds all up high. What's it? They we, blow the top of the tree off, and you don't yeah. see them further inland. Further inland, you see but, straighter, yeah, more straight-up growing trees with big, full canopies because they don't succumb to the coastal winds as much. Absolutely, you're 100 percent right there because that whole Port Stephens Peninsula, if you like, that sticks, that juts right out. Yep. Um, you know, if you if you're on stock, the beginning of Stockton Beach. And looking directly north, Port Stephens and Nelson Bay—that's a long way out to the right. Yeah. And so, 
it cops an absolute hiding every time we get tropical storm, uh, a, not tropical storm, but every time we have big storms come down um, from the north or massive southerly storms coming up from the south. Um, Port Stevens gets gets absolutely hammered, and so I'd actually look. I I implore you to go around and actually look at some of your older, bigger trees, and 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 take some photographs for your you know your Instagram followers or your or some of the because up there is some really untouched land as well, and so you're going to find um, some very unique and interesting. Um, uh, things that we can look at and 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 say, well, hang on, that's this is a whole different sort of look, mm. if you like. It's it's hard because trees in general it doesn't matter whether or not they're natives or exotic. Trees in general will always want to be, or will always try to have some sort of symmetry about them. They grow they grow best in this dome sort of shape, yep. whether they be a big banyan dome or a more conical dome, a conical shape, should I say, more triangular. Um, they all grow in this, you know, they have their, their, their shapes like that and even our natives will try and get back to that. I mean, you'd notice that you don't prune our natives for a couple of months. You know, they just end up this mess of, of branchlets and leaves and all of that sort of stuff, but usually in a big dome shape or, or, or a big ball or whatever because that's the most photosynthetically active. Um, it's only when trees get really old that they start taking on a symmetry because branches have been knocked off in wind or the crown's been knocked out, you know, like what you're experiencing up in uh, the Nelson Bay area um, with those, you know, violent storms that can come through and, and cause havoc to the trees. Well, it's so, not just that. It's, the, it's because we're so far out on the coastline, yep. we're never protected. Mm. Whether we get a northern, like a northern one or a southerly, doesn't matter. We well, you get, get it. You get smashed. We get it all. And next time you come up to my place, just have a look on your drive up and you'll notice that a lot of the canopies of our bushland is deadwood right at the top. And then the actual canopy starts lower down. And as I mentioned, a lot of my trees that I'm doing at the moment, I've been experimenting with that style where, say I've got a big tree, Mm. I'll actually plan to make the apex down here somewhere and then I'll strip the top of the tree keep the dead wood up there, start the apex further down the tree and have a tree with... What, dead... um, what trees are you using that? What are you doing that with? Uh, mostly leptos at the moment. How, how are you finding the... Like, are you um, treating the wood? Are you treating the wood yeah. with a gin? Lime sulfur. Lime sulfur, yep. Yeah. Yeah, cool. But I'm not straight away. I mean, are you letting it age a little bit? I'm... Not really aged, but I let it dry out for a couple of days. Okay. Because whether it matters or not, I just worry about the lime sulfur seeping back into the cambium of the tree and feeding it to the rest of the tree. Yeah, fair enough. So I try to let the dead wood die out for a couple of days. Yep. Like, just let it dry. Yeah. And then paint it up and seal it up rather than doing it straight away. Because you know, if you do a gin on a on a branch and the tree is well watered, you can feel the moisture in it. Oh, absolutely! And you just wouldn't want a little bit of live tissue to start carrying that lime sulfur away well, in the tree. Yeah, they wick. That's the thing about the live tissue. If you put something on it that's wet, it'll wick it in because it's trying to suck up. All mm. of a sudden, you've exposed it, and it's trying to suck up anything before it dries out. Yeah. Um, 
So it could, yeah, it could definitely wick. Um, it's yeah, with with all my pine work, I, I'll generally any gins or sharis, um, I I will generally let them age at least six months. Yep. On my gin, on on the pines, um, I don't tend to have a lot of uh, gins on pines. I will have sharis, but not gins. Um, pines are relatively soft um, wood anyway, um, but certainly on the junipers, junipers are very hard wood. Yep. Especially an old juniper, it's got quite hard wood. So, um, but I'll still let them age, you know, get that sun bleaching, and 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 by that six month time, I'll have a better idea, usually, of where I want to go with regards to perhaps it needs bulk taken out of it, or perhaps it needs refining, um, and then you know, but and then I'll start painting it with um, with gin fluid for those. But I'm just interested with our natives because I know. Obviously, with eucalypts, you're dealing with hardwood. Yep. So once the wood, once but but in saying that, it's an organic wood, like it's soft wood to begin with, because you just cut it. I mean, they're hard to cut sometimes, but yep. it's but it's still alive. So I'm interested to know, you know, if you were to cut a piece of timber, and you had to season that timber before making it into, uh, and I'm talking like a giant log of wood, and you had to season that log of wood. I think sometimes they can take two three years yeah to get to be able to be used in the lumber mill to to make two befores or four befores whatever yep. um, you're going to make out of that wood so i'm interested to know how long that takes i mean leptos you know, obviously you're waiting a couple of days but I'd, I'd be interested to know how long that actually takes to to get out and whether or not because you're actually making it a fresh gin as you go is that going to take a couple of years to crack to to start to show that real weathering which is what we appreciate on gins yep is that real weathered sort of look and how and how manageable that is to be able to retain over a long period of time are we able to use like a earl's wood hardener yep. is that is that going to be something that's more effective well over long term the lepto wood actually goes very very hard after putting the lime sulfur on it okay like really really hard yeah right so the good thing about it is is if you want that really cracked worn gin look paint it up with lime sulfur Mm. let it sit for a couple of days come back with your gin pliers or your pliers put it on the end yep twist it yeah okay and it'll crack and snap yeah okay all right I'd be interested to see how long like I know if you want to do like Figs isn't generally something that you would consider doing um, any shari or any. Certainly, you wouldn't consider having gins on a on a fig, but hollows and sharis are actually quite common on ficus species, yeah. especially if you're talking about say what they do in Vietnam. Um, you know, watching people on the side of the road with chisels and hammers actually putting sharis and 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 hollows into into ficus. On the side, you know, as they're working away. Yep. Um, what was a nice, beautiful trunk? You know, they're they're scarring up and putting, you know, the, the Chinese call them horses' eyes, and we've spoken about this before. But you know, I came home from my trip and looked at one of my trees and went, "You beauty, I've got a massive horse eye on my, in the middle of my <laughs> trunk." Um, whereas before, I'd been trying to hide that. Now I embrace it and go, "Well, it's a horse eye, mate. Look at it. That's a valuable piece of that trunk. I'm not getting rid of the horse eye." <laughs> But um, so, but in saying that, working with ficus species, 
you know that wood's going to be pretty soft yeah um and so for those i'm i would be painting them twice a year with with with, uh, lime sulfur um so you know with your lepto you're saying it's really hard that maybe just hopefully a yearly thing you only have to do it with the rest of everything that you would do anyway yeah um i know um oh dave's got dave up at the nursery has a um his um oh what's the really nice one on the pedestal at the front of the collection up there oh i know the one you're talking about it's got the really long leaves starts with a oh but he has to work that twice a year yeah with gin fluid um which is lime sulfur um because the wood's quite soft yep but in saying that the hole that is in that particular trunk because there's so many leaves on that tree now and they're, they're quite you know as you said they're a little bit long but they're all in proportion to the size of that tree um that hole is closing over slowly slowly you know like and it won't be long until it's no longer there so you know like on swamp cypress if you make big hollows and carvings and on um sharis on swamp cypress you will be over a period of time having to reopen that wound because it'll want to close it yeah um so yeah it'd be interesting to see where that goes yeah um and how how technique will will apply over time so mm. yeah well it's funny because one of my um one of my leptos that i have i don't know if you remember it but it's got the dead wood up one side and the live foliage on the other side yep 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 well <clears throat> we had to move some stuff around in the garden a few days ago and amber went to pick that up and the dead wood went straight up a nose <laughs> Oh, really? <laughs> Didn't notice it? Yeah. Gave, gave her a bit of a uh, brain tickle. That was good. <laughs> Didn't snap the dead wood, though. Didn't snap the dead wood? No. No, that's good. That's good. Look, um, it wouldn't surprise me because if, if Australia, a lot of native stuff is, is quite hard because they grow so quickly. Like, I know... Oh, I heard it not long ago. It may have even been Hugh that we were talking about it. Um... Like to check the age of trees, normally like doing the the tree growth rings is yeah. a, is a reliable way of checking trees. Not for Australian natives because they can put like three rings on in a year. Yeah, and so you might look at it and go, "Oh, look at this tree; it's big, old, thick," and go, "Oh, look, it says it's four hundred years old," but it might only be a hundred years old. Yeah, because it's had successive good seasons where it's put on three, four, five rings in in a in a season. Yeah, and so. You know, for us, part of why, like, utilising uh, in junipers, it's hard to get, well, quite often, on a, if you gin or make a dead branch out of a, out of a young branch, even on a juniper, that won't actually sustain and hold without keeping the lime sulphur up to it because it doesn't have enough layers yeah. in the branch to actually sustain over a long time. So... By that, th- by that thinking, if our natives are putting on three, two, three, four, five layers, you know, I could be talking out of turn there saying four or five, but I know that two or three is not uncommon. Um, if it's putting on that much girth and that much growth, that's a lot of strength in a, in a, in a piece of wood. You know, there's a lot of layers holding that wood together, so that's strong wood. Yeah. You know, you look at our eucalypts, they're damn hard. That's hard wood. We call it hard wood, you know, because it's really hard wood. So 
you know, you've got to think that, you know, and incorporating dead pieces or gins in, and sharis into our native trees is quite natural anyway because they do it all the time. Yep. So, you know, I'm, you know, there's great, great hope that those gins will last a long time. Yep. And that's where I'm trying to get at. Yeah. It sounds like our, our natives are putting on so much wood that the, the gin work will last. And I do have a lepto out the front, out, outside, should I say. Um, and I haven't treated, I've had that, I've had that for four years now. I haven't treated the wood once. And um, there's not a, it's still stark white. Looks like it's never going to fall off. It's, it's yeah. Not, it's uh, Leptospernum uh, juniperium, I think it is. And, um, the wood is still rock hard. Yeah. I haven't treated it in four years. Mainly, I don't overhead water a lot, and I try not to overhead water any tree with too many with, trees with a lot of gins on them. If you're overhead watering all the time, you're gonna yeah eventually run into problems with the gin gin work and sharis. So yeah, try not to do that. But yeah, it's encouraging that we could have a you know well the utilization of that is is another thing for us. Yeah, and one more interesting thing before we have to wrap it up. Yeah. Um, one thing I have noticed too is with the sharis on the leptos, mm. and for anyone listening too, I don't just own leptos <laughs> and melaleucas. <laughs> he does I've, have some other trees up there. I've got black pines and junipers and Chinese elms and yep. Japanese maple, trident maples. Yep. I've got them all. These are just the ones that I'm really focusing on because I like to focus on one or two species at a time and really learn them and then move on. Mm. But one thing I've noticed with the shari on the leptos as well is they don't really swell as much because on junipers, they swell really quickly. And I'm When talking, you say swell, what do you mean? Well, you know when the cambium starts to heal back through at the sides of the shari? Okay, gotcha. So you yeah. do it on a juniper. Like I've got a juniper at the moment that's got some really bad inverse taper at the bottom mm. where it goes into the pot like that. The rest of the tree's beautiful just this one little section so i know that i can put a bit of shari there and move it out each year Mm. and try and fix that Mm. and then i'll be able to shari the rest of the tree and it sure it'll be it'll be okay yeah but i've noticed on the leptos um peter sonii at least anyway sure is that it doesn't really swell that much yeah, so you're so you're saying you're talking about the live vein of the tree not swelling. Yeah. To actually callus back over. And, yeah. And, and yeah, because you know what saying. junipers are like at the edge. If you do a really yep. nice edge, it'll start to. It'll callus over. It'll callus over, and yep. that causes a swelling effect. Yep. So that part of the tree will actually get a little bit wider because it's swelling. Yeah, well, there, there are techniques like that which you can utilise in, and, and that's a wound response to mm. by the tree. Um, what I've found with some of our natives is that they don't necessarily, uh, they're not big on filling in um, at that cut point. Yep. And sometimes they can actually recede underneath the bark. And so you're left with like a little lip of, yeah. of dead bark with the live vein actually sitting, or that live callus that's healing, actually sitting underneath what is now become a, a, a proud bit of bark. It's, it's actually going over the top of the live vein. So you might have to come in and actually pull the bark back. Yep. Um, I kind of like it though. <coughs> look, it's another, it's another look, another little, you know, 
trick of our trees. You know, there's all these different, um, you know, ideas and and uh, well, not ideas, but all these different sort of um, things that are unique to our trees. Well, I find that the Australian natives suit a really elegant kind of styling. Yes. Um, tall, thin. That I agree kind with of you stuff. on that. Yeah. Um, so when you've got a shari that's very neat and sharp and not swelled on the edges, mm. it looks nice. Where on a juniper, if you cut a nice deep shari and it swells and it gets gnarly around it, that looks good for a juniper. So Yeah, and I, I think too, like junipers are one of those ones that do swell and grow, like they're noticeable in their growth. Um, and our natives do it as well. They get that real strong, noticeable growth. And, and I suppose too... And, and I'll be interested to talk to you in another year about what you're finding with those particular wounds. Um, are they... Because the tree might be saying to itself, well, hang on a sec here, let's just send a little bit of resources, let's get this patched up, because if this other area of the tree takes off, we might not need this. Yep. You know what I mean? Are our trees, for want of a better word, smart enough to say... <laughs> Well, hang on a sec. Let's just let's only send a bit of resources there, rather than sending heaps of resources there and, and fixing the wound quickly, getting that callousing and rolling over of the wound. Yeah. Um, or are they are they that sort of callous? Pardon a different word of the callous. Are they that callous that they're saying, "Well, hang on a sec. You've been wounded, mate. You could be left behind." Yep. You know what I mean? Like, they're not like the American Army and leave no man behind. They could be leaving that whole branch behind. <laughs> you know, if it's if it's a bad enough wound, well, hang on a sec, let's shoot from the base again. You know, and up comes a sucker. We see it on gums all the time. Out of um, out of the base after the fire or they get this epicormic growth um, after fire has gone ravaged through their system. Um, and, you know, a lot of the time that can come straight from the base. And if you create too much of a shari in, in some trees and they can shoot from the base, well, you're fighting suckers for the next however long until it either says, oh, bugger you, I will grow it, or it just says, no, nah, you know what, I've had enough of you. Yeah. I'm going I'm to you know, pack up my bags and go home, thanks. I've had enough. Um, so I'd be interested in another year to see the results of your of the work on the shari on the leptopetersonii. Yep. Um, and whether or not it has... It may, it may be just in a stalling phase because it's shocked about what you've done and I don't know. How long ago did you do it? Mm, be coming up on 12 months. Okay. Well, it should have... It should be well and truly on its way. So maybe I'd be interested to have a look at them and, and cite them myself and, and have, a, have a better understanding of what's going on. Yeah. But it's... Hey, it's, it's contrasting to what they would normally do because they grow so quick. Yeah. So it's totally opposite to what, you know, you'd be thinking they would, they would be healing up and callousing quicker than what a juniper would or other trees because they have so much movement of water up and down that um, xylem and, and yeah. the phloem. So yeah, because the rest of the tree grows like you would expect a lepto to grow. You can't keep the wire on it. Yep. Okay. Because you put wire on it, and a couple of weeks later, Two weeks. it's just it's eating it. In the growing season, um, I have found with all of my natives in the growing season, 
wiring is problematic. Yeah. It is. It, you you will wire. It's like wiring a fig in the growing season. You know, you wire a fig in the growing season, you are asking to take that wire off two weeks later. Yeah. Because it will start... It, it won't it won't dig in all over the tree. It won't start to scour all over. It'll be in the shoulders of the of each branch that you'll start getting. Because all of a sudden, you've placed all of the foliage in areas that are super photosynthetically conductive. Yep. And the tree goes, thank you very much for doing that. I'm going to start pumping resources back through that shoulder. And that shoulder just happens to be wired nice and tightly so that it's in the right <laughs> position. And two weeks later, you're going, holy crap, that shoulder's digging in. I'm going to have to pull it off. You know, of course, depending on you, if you want that scarless trunk, you know, and, and I suggest people try having to do scarless work. It's hard. It's a work of guy wires. <laughs> well, it takes a lot of, it takes a lot of planning. Yeah. That's, that's the big thing I've found. It takes a lot of planning. And, you know, I'm a bonsai nerd. Uh, there's no two two ways about it. I'm I'm when it comes to bonsai, I I have photographs. My computer is half full of all my own trees as well as other trees I've photographed. Collections, uh, exhibitions, conventions, you name it. Um, and so, <coughs> and so, I'm 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 going to start writing a lot more stuff down than what I have been. Um, keeping more of a journal. So that I'm, I'm have a you know a greater understanding again of, of what I can do and and understanding and having that end goal or this is the sort of shape I'd like to have or this is what I'm looking forward to this year. This year I'm going to develop the hell out of this tree. I'm going to just stick it up, pump, pump, pump. Yep. Cool. You know what you're doing for that tree, and like you've said it yourself when we were outside. Oh, I've got to a stage now where I can just hammer through my leptos and do it, and that's because in your head you know exactly what each lepto is doing. And you know exactly which direction you're going for. And if you have those sort of little cues, those little, and you, and you have a plan in your head, like there's you know, 250 odd trees out the back. I don't have a plan for every single one of them, but for 70 odd I do. It all lives in my head. And that's what I was saying. I've got to start writing a few more of these things down um, because I forget things as well, obviously. You, know, yeah. you can't remember it all. Um, but certainly the other 180-odd trees that are out there that are in black pots developing, I don't really have... I have some plans for some of them. And I have an idea. Oh, yeah, I like the line that's following. I like the way this is going. But planning and staging, and, and that helps when you're fertilising. That helps to know, oh, hang on a sec, do I have to prune that this year? No, no, no. It's in a full development year. I don't want to touch it. Yeah. You know, and that changes for coniferous trees to deciduous trees because if you allow deciduous trees and especially deciduous trees that you're looking for a scarless tree if you allow them just to go nuts for two years you're going to have a heap of inverse taper in areas you're going to have areas where four or five branches went off at the same time and now it's super thick and that beautiful curve that you had has been ruined by an internal branch that's now created you know so Deciduous is different again. You know, you, you're, you're putting the tree into a full stage of development and you know you are and you're feeding it like crazy but you're still in there every two or three months or even every month just getting rid of those buds that are inside the bends. Yep. You know, making sure that that energy is being distributed distributed evenly through the tree or distributed according to where you want it. Yep. So, 
So, and, and that's, you know, as a bonsai, as a bonsai hobbyist, you probably don't have to worry about that so much, that sort of planning, that sort of staging, that sort of, um, but if you want to be serious about growing trees, we spoke about it today. Bonsai is the most awesome thing when you start. It's exciting. Everything's race, racing by. You think, oh, I'm going to have the most unreal bonsai within five years you're ever going to see. People are going to be lining up to get into my backyard to look at my trees. And then five years comes and goes and you go, geez, I really don't have a bonsai yet. They're all looking good. They're getting there. But then have they maintained the rage mm. after five years? Are they still maintaining the rage after 10 years when kids come along, when you get a new job that requires you to work 80 hours a week, when you're doing this, when you're doing that? Are the bonsai being put on the back burner? Because all of those dreams and all those plans that you had for the bonsai, they've all gone on the back burner. That means that all those plans are no good anymore. You need to change everything and start yeah. it all again when you get back into it. So how, you know, and we see it at the club all the time. People join the club. You know, our membership fluctuates a little bit because people join the club and they think, oh, this is unreal. It's a bonsai club. I'm going to learn heaps. And then after about three or four months, they realise, holy crap, or two years in, they go, holy crap. Well, trees don't look anything like that yet. They're getting there, but you're telling me it's going to be another, like for a deciduous, you're telling me it's going to be 30 years? <laughs> and they go, oh. And so maintaining the rage, yeah, you know, maintaining that enthusiasm, that's the hardest part. And it's a funny thing, Peter Chan said to me when I went away on a trip, I met Peter Chan in, in Japan on a bonsai tour and in 06, and he said to me, he goes, I hope you stay in it and I hope you maintain the enthusiasm. And I was, I'd been doing bonsai for about 12 years at that stage. And um, I was like, mate, I've been doing it for 12 years, I own a nursery, of course I'm going to. You know, and he goes, no, no, it gets boring. And I went, what are you talking about? And I, and I think like the internet hadn't come full circle. Like there yeah. wasn't, there wasn't that resource there that we could constantly feed our enthusiasm with. You know, Facebook, Bonsai Australia, Oz Bonsai, wherever you want to get your your face your Bonsai kicks from. Yep, there's plenty out there to to have a go at. Um, but for you know. It's it's like you know it's like the old saying with bonsai you start out you buy get get up to a hundred every ten years you cut it in half yep and so you know it goes to fifty to twenty five to twelve so within forty to fifty years you have twelve really good bonsai yep you know you keep the best fifty you keep the best twenty five you keep the best twelve and it's the same with bonsai practitioners or bonsai hobbyists or bonsai people. They all start really keen, and there's a hundred of them, and they're keen. But after two years, only fifty left, and after five years, you'll be lucky if there's three. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a matter of yeah, you know, you know I, I sincerely hope that it's not three; it's ten left. Yep. We'll never keep a hundred. That's uh, you know, everyone's starting. You'll never do a hundred percent. It's unreasonable. It's, that's never going to happen. But if we could keep ten percent of everyone who got interested. What a hobby it would be! What a, what a it would like, especially here in Australia. It would all of a sudden mean we have an industry. You know, we're talking about oh, you know, big trunk chops and stuff. You know, demand for the market. There's more and more people getting interested, and so there are more and more people growing trees. Yeah. Um, and the exploration of Yamadori is going to change things again. 
Well, I guess so. a um, I guess a good closing note would be is don't have a hundred mediocre trees. <laughs> have ten show winning trees. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And don't let trees. your don't let your relationship with bonsai get that seven year itch. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the seven year itch is a very true thing for bonsai. So <laughs> don't let it happen. Don't let it happen. Maintain the rage. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, keep going. If you need to, put your bonsai in a schoolgirl skirt and keep that fire burning. <laughs> <laughs> but mate, yeah, pleasure to talk to you again, mate. Yeah, it's um, been awesome. Yeah, cool. Great day. Thank Thanks, you. buddy.